Well, good morning again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 9? And if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to have you here this morning. And just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary. And uh, we started chapter 9 last week, and uh, we saw how Jesus healed a blind man. Now, the Gospels record that, record that Jesus healed blind people more than any other sickness or disease, at least five recorded in the Gospels. However, this is the only case of blindness recorded in the Gospels where Jesus healed a man who was born blind, who was born blind. In fact, John 9 is really a continuation of chapter 8, as we said last time, where Jesus proclaimed himself in chapter 8, verse 12, to be the light of of the world. The whole chapter is actually built around that statement. And then as we enter into John 9, really it's the same scene, okay? Same day, same folks. It's no coincidence that as Jesus presented his passion and purpose in life in verse 4, I must do the works of him who sent me. After he expressed that passion, he again refers to himself as the light of the world in verse 5, and then proceeds to heal a man born blind, giving him sight. Well, that was significant because it was sin that robbed man of spiritual sight in the first place, plunged the human race into darkness. It was sin that imposed a spiritual blindness on all of us. And Jesus, being the light of the world, came to restore our spiritual sight, by bringing the light of God's truth to the world. Now, of course, that's what Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. In a sense, he was saying, not only am I the source of truth, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, right? The truth became flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus didn't just proclaim truth, he embodied truth. He is truth, all right? And, of course, it was Satan's lies that enslaved mankind, uh, threw us into darkness, right? And now Jesus has come as the full disclosure of God's revelation to man. Again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And therefore, he, he not only came to give us light, God's truth, he came to show us what God was really all about. We'll save that for chapter 14. Very important study. But uh, this is the work of God, verse 4. I must work the works of him who sent me. This is the works of God that for Jesus to come and seek and to save those who were lost. And I believe this way, guys, and I could be wrong, but I believe this way, that the Holy Spirit is using this blind man to represent fallen mankind in general. I think verse 39 alludes to that. And so in, re in that regard, I believe this man represents all of us. Or in other words, he is a picture of the natural man. Of course, when we're born into this world physically, we are called in the Bible natural men and women. Uh, that's just natural birth, nothing supernatural about it per se, um, but we're born in Adam, all right, with physical bodies. But I believe the Holy Spirit is holding up this man as a picture of all of us, fallen mankind. Let me show you why I believe that. First of all, of all, again, he was born blind from birth. The only place in the gospel where Jesus healed a man born blind. In other words, again, he is the picture of the natural man. We're all born 
uh, natural men and women when we're born to this world in Adam, all unbelievers, and again, blind spiritually from birth. Number two, he was beyond the help of man and needed a miracle from God to receive his sight, just like all of us. As natural men and women, salvation is what restores our spiritual sight, or actually it doesn't restore, it gives it to us. This man's sight was not restored, it was given to him. He never had it. Just like we never had spiritual sight before we got saved, but salvation is a miracle of God. Number three, this man was a beggar. He was poor, destitute, and listen, totally dependent on the mercy and grace of God to be healed. Even as Jesus said to those who want to be saved, we must be poor in spirit. And the Greek word means destitute, bankrupt. We have to come to God with nothing. Uh, we, don't, we, we don't have anything to offer God whereby we can purchase our redemption, our salvation. Um, in fact, if we think we do, God won't give it to us. If we think that we can earn it, buy it, uh, deserve it, we won't get it. This man didn't have anything he was destitute he had nothing to offer god to purchase his sight it was a total gift of jesus in fact also jesus sought him out right he didn't seek jesus out jesus sought him out to be healed most of us i don't know you all but most of us i can vouch for most of you in this room that uh, you are here because Jesus sought you out as a divine act of his sovereign grace, even as he sought this blind man out. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. I am the good shepherd that goes looking for lost sheep. You didn't look for Jesus. He came looking for you. Oh, no, that's not true, Pastor. I remember the day when I said, I got to... I got to find God. You know, I, I, you know, I got to find God. All you were doing was responding to the voice of God in your heart. He was calling you. And you were responding. You didn't realize that. You thought you initiated, right? I found Jesus. No, he didn't. He wasn't lost. He found you and me, okay? Now, when Jesus found this man, he was outside the temple. It was in the temple that man had fellowship with God. That was what the old system was built around, the animal sacrifices. But the Holy Spirit makes it a point to tell us that when Jesus found this man, he was outside the temple. In other words, he was an alienated from the life of God, just as all of us at one time, as natural men and women, were alienated from God. Paul says this very clearly in Ephesians 4, verse 18, talking about Gentiles or unbelievers. He says, having their understanding darkened, being, listen, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. That was where all of us were at one time. Alienated from God, ignorant, blind, spiritually speaking. Here's something interesting. I can go for a couple hours, but I'll just stop with this one. I thought this was interesting. You may not. The Holy Spirit makes it a point to tell us this guy was 30 years old when he got healed. Why does that matter to us? What do we care if he was 30 years old? 
But the Spirit of God makes it a point to say he was 30 years old. Now, if you take your concordance and look up the word 30, you will discover maybe only time or but one of the times it's used of the, the age that a priest could begin his priestly ministry. Now, of course, he had to be a, a, a descendant of Aaron. I'm not saying this guy was uh, a descendant of Aaron. I'm not saying that. It's just interesting that a priest could not begin his public ministry until he was 30 years old. Now, if this guy represents all of us who get saved, the Bible says that when we get saved, we become a kingdom of priests, right? Paul said in Romans 12, 1, it's our, we are to offer sacrifices to God, primarily our bodies, not literally, but we present them to God every day on the altar of sacrifice as an act of worship. In fact, it, uh, Paul says here in uh, Romans 12, 1, uh, you know, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This guy, after he got healed, he became a witness and a worshiper. We'll look at that more in a moment. I just think that's interesting. Peter nails it even more clearly. 1 Peter 2, 5. He says, now talking about us who are now born again, he said, we're living stones. We're being built up uh, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I don't know. You know if you don't see it, fine. Okay. I see things. Uh, maybe I'm a little crazy at times, but I, I believe that the Holy Spirit has placed in the Word of God these types and shadows. And, and you know, the more you're willing to dig, the more you will mine these treasures. Sure, there's a lot of nuggets of gold right on the surface. And that's where a lot of Christians live. They don't want to dig any deeper. Just kind of lazy, just, hey, blessings, just pick it up, pull it off the ground. But you dig into the Word and really pray and get in there, you're going to mine things that God has placed there for your learning that will excite you. That will, will be a testimony to divine, the divine authorship of God's Word. So as we go through this story, be sensitive to the spiritual lessons the Holy Spirit is teaching us through it. Now, Let's review a little bit from last week. I want to add some stuff that I, we didn't have time to get to. I think it's relevant, important. So back up to verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, and understand what that's all about, read verse 59 uh, of uh, chapter 8. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's something in our human nature that wants to ascribe blame. I don't know why that is, but something in all of us that wants to ascribe blame for tragedy and adversity. It's coming out right here through the disciples. They demonstrated here with their question, Lord, whose fault is it that this man was born blind? You know, many people today blame God. For human suffering they claim it proves that he is not a good and a loving god because if he was there wouldn't be suffering um, handicaps disease deformity so on others maintain no god is a all good and all loving god but that the, re the reason there is sickness and suffering in the world is because he's not strong enough to stop it now that's not our view as evangelicals. 
But that view became very popular with a book written some time ago by a rabbi uh, known as, uh, whose name is Harold Kushner, Rabbi Harold Kushner. He wrote a book, the title nailed it. He, he picked a, a, a winning title, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That resonated with people so strongly, that book shot immediately up to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Because everyone wrestles with that problem. Why do bad things happen to good people? It says all of us are basically good in the minds of, you know, Romans, um, Proverbs 20, verse 6, I think it says pretty much every man proclaims each his own goodness. We all think we're good people. Therefore, any adversity, tragedy, that, that's wrong. It's, why does God allow it? The good rabbi's conclusion was, well, God is good and he is loving. He's just not strong enough to stop bad things happening to good people. Obviously, that's not the biblical understanding of our God. See, Rabbi Kushner starts with a faulty premise that there are good people in the world for bad things to happen to. You can read Romans 3 again. There is none good. No, not one. We're all fallen sinners. We all deserve hell. Any good that God... It's not, it's not why does bad thing happen to good people. It's why does, why does anything good happen to bad people? That's the real issue. I'm a good person. Why do bad things happen to good people like me? You're not a good person. Who told you you were a good person? I mean, I, I, God didn't tell you you were a good person. You get that from the Bible, you know. Look, we all deserve hell. We are all fallen sinners. Whatever God gives us in the way of blessing, we don't deserve. We ought to fall on our faces and thank him for his mercy and grace. The ultimate example of this being salvation. None of us deserve to be saved. None of us deserve to go to heaven. We all deserve to go to hell. But, but because God is a good and loving and kind and merciful God, sent his son to die in our place that we might spend eternity with him. That's our God. Now, as we said last week, the disciples' question reflects the teachings of the rabbis back then who taught that sickness and handicaps like blindness were due to sin in the life of the one suffering and as we said last time look all sickness disease handicaps and death itself are can all be traced back to sin adam's sin in the garden of eden what we call original sin all right yeah ultimately all sickness handicaps deformity death can all be traced back to one man's sin adam but the Bible never teaches that individual suffering has a direct causal link to a person's sin. That was something the book of Job took on, didn't it? And if we didn't have chapter 1 of the book of Job where God himself declared Job a righteous man, we would have jumped right in with his buddies. Who after he went through all this adversity and finally his health was taken away, his children were all killed, uh, all of his possessions stolen, and finally he was covered from head to foot with oozing boils. It's just horrible what this poor man went through. If we didn't know that God allowed Satan to inflict this on Job, we might be prone to side with his friends who eventually sat with him in the, in the uh, uh, trash heap and tried to comfort him. Job would go on to say, after a little while of their comfort, miserable comforters are you all. Because they maintained, here was their, their position, 
Job, God doesn't punish uh, righteous people. The fact that you've gone, you're going through all this adversity and suffering like you are, it's because of sin in your life. Now you got to fess up. You know, get it right with God. You know, confess your sin. And Job maintained his innocence. Not a perfect man, but he was definitely not an overt sinner. And finally, God appeared to Job at the end of the book. Rebukes Job's friends and says that Job was a righteous man. And uh, I'll have Job pray for you. Otherwise, I'm going to judge you for judging this man. But before God said this, he appears to Job. And, uh, you know, Job had all these whys. Why, God? Why, God? Why? And when God finally appears to him, he never does answer his whys. You notice that? You study the book of Job? God never answered Job's whys. You know why? Because there's always going to be another why. If God would appear to us today, we'd have a hundred whys. And if God chose to answer all hundred, next week we'd have probably a hundred more. It never ends. And we'd always be living in a state of perpetual doubt about God's ability to take care of things. So what did God do? He took Job on a little tour of creation. You can read about it. Took him into the heavens and said, look at the constellations. You know why I made certain constellations this way and how they travel the, the, the circuit in the heavens. And, and he took him to the oceans and, 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 and all the animals. And you know why I made this bird this way. And, 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 and she leaves her young. She doesn't care. And this one dotes over them. And this. after he takes him on this incredible tour of creation, never answering a why, Job says, I'm going to just shut my mouth now. I, I, you've shown me things too wonderful for me. That's the whole point. If we know our God, we don't have to know why. We know him. That's what the whole point was. Okay? That when we go through adversity, we don't always try to figure out why. Whose fault is this? That's not the issue. God's allowed it. Oh, but I don't get it. If God were small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. You know, again, read Isaiah 55, uh, uh, um, 8 to 10. I'm sorry, uh, 8 to 9. And then you can read 10 and 11, I think is good too. It's all, it's all good. But the, but the one where God says, look, my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, my ways than your ways. Bottom line, stop trying to figure me out. Just embrace me. When you go through adversity, understand I love you. Oh, but God, if you love me, why am I going through this? I love you. I have my reasons. Now, these things can make you bitter or better. It's up to you. You'd be much better off if you just ran to me, and, and held on to me and, and comforted yourself in my word and my wisdom and my power and my love. Because I'm not going to tell you all the whys of life. It wouldn't solve anything. Now listen, back to <laughs> John 9. The, the, the rabbi's explanation as to why people became sick, became handicapped, didn't solve the problem of why some children were born that way. Okay, so this guy got blind. 
uh, in some kind of an accident, or he developed leprosy or something, and uh, the rabbi, well, there must be sin in his life. That's what caused it. Okay, a lot of people accepted that, but then what about children who were born with handicaps, like this guy was born blind? Well, the rabbis had an answer for that. They taught that children were born handicapped, listen, because of sin on the part of one or both of their parents, grandparents, or even their great-grandparents. The rabbis had uh, an answer for everything, and they based it on Scripture. But their interpretation of Scripture was often very faulty. But here's where they got this, that a person could become handicapped or sick or born that way uh, because of the sin of their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. Uh, turn to Exodus 20. Here's where they got that from. You're familiar with it. It comes out of the Ten Commandments, where God at one point stops and elaborates on something. Verse 4, he said, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Listen, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Let me stop there. And so from this passage, the rabbis taught that a person could be born handicapped due to the sin of their parents, grandparents, or even because of the sin of their great-grandparents. Now, I want to stop and, and, and just take a minute, to because I, I need to bring this in, seeing that we've just looked at Exodus 20, especially verse 5. Um, there are Christians, maybe you know some, maybe one of you was one of these folks. There are Christians who have used Exodus 20, verse 5 as a basis to teach a doctrine they call generational curses. Generational curses. I took this definition directly from the website of a deliverance ministry. I don't want to put words in their mouth. I wanted to hear how they defined generational curses. So I went right to one of their websites, and uh, I pulled this off. This is a group of people that run this website that believe in and promote deliverance from generational curses. Here's what it says in part. It says, and I quote, a generational curse is basically a defilement that was passed down from one generation to another. For example, if your mother has been heavily involved in the occult, then she has become quite defiled, in other words, polluted or unclean, and has opened herself up to various demons to enter her. The Bible tells us that the sin of the parents can cause that same pollution to be handed down to their children. Now, let me just stop and say this. I agree that actions and lifestyles of parents can affect their children by making them more inclined and susceptible uh, to the same behaviors that the parents themselves have engaged in maybe for many years, like alcoholism, drug abuse. If you have an alcoholic mother or father or both parents, you're more inclined to become an alcoholic yourself. Same with drug addiction. Where I disagree with these deliverance ministries is when they go from that point that the behavior of parents can influence children. They take it from that and they go to the nth degree. And here's what the website goes on to say. 
what happens is not only, excuse me, what happens is that not only is the uncleanness handed down, but demons move right in to take advantage of this often, uh, take advantage of this often at a very young age in a person's life, often before birth, what they have on their website. The person then goes throughout life struggling with the same bondages that their parents struggle with, end quote. And so, guys, what they are saying is that sinful behaviors are the result, listen, of demons living inside a person. In other words, everything from anger to alcoholism, from laziness to lust, is the result of demons who are passed down to you from the sins of your parents in the form of generational curses, listen, while you were still in the womb. First of all, let me say this. The Bible clearly teaches that consequences, not curses, are passed down through generations of families. In other words, the children of, of alcoholic and or abusive parents will have a tendency, as I just said, to follow in their parents' footsteps. I mean, that's been proven through many studies. Moreover, the descendants of those who hate God are more likely to grow up hating him themselves because of the example and the indoctrination that they have uh, received at the hands of a God-hating parent or two. But here's the thing. The Hebrew word for hate in Exodus 20, verse 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me is a Hebrew word that actually means bent. Bent. In other words, parents can and do pass on to their children certain psychological bents and behaviors whereby they cause their children to grow bent toward the world in some aspect of their life. And of course, if they are bending toward the world, they are bending away from God. In some cases, that bent can be radical, radical, depending on the parents. Now, as I said, this has been proven through many studies, but none more powerfully than the one I will share with you now. Some time ago, a study was done comparing two families in the state of New York. One was the family of a man named Max Jukes. The other was the family of Jonathan Edwards, the well-known Puritan preacher and pastor. The thing that they discovered in this study was remarkable, that likes beget likes, or as the Bible puts it, what you sow, you will reap, and that everything will bring forth after its kind. Here's what the article said. I'll read it to you. Uh, it says, and I quote, Max Jukes lived in New York. He did not believe in Christ or in Christian training, and he married an unbelieving woman who lacked character like him. He refused to take his children to church even when they asked to go. He has had 1,026 descendants. 300 were sent to prison for an average term of 13 years each, seven of them for murder, 190 were public prostitutes, 680 were admitted alcoholics, bums, and petty thieves. His family thus far has cost the state of New York about $1.5 million, and that family has made no contribution to society that is of any benefit. Jonathan Edwards lived in the same state at the same time as Jukes. He loved the Lord and married a woman of like character, who saw that his children were in church every Sunday as he served the Lord to the best of his ability. 
He has had 929 descendants. Of these, 300 became clergymen, missionaries, and theological professors. Over 100 became college professors. Over 100 became attorneys. 30 of them judges. 60 of them became physicians. Over 60 became authors of good classic books. 14 became presidents of universities. Five were elected to the House of Representatives, two to the Senate, and one served our nation as vice president. His family never cost the state one cent, but has contributed immeasurably to the life of plenty in this land today, end quote. And then at the, after the article, the author writes Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Look, I, I don't believe in uh, generational curses, at least not in the way that the, the uh, deliverance ministries uh, teach these things. First of all, the Bible is clear that God doesn't hold the sins of parents against their children. As in the teaching of generational curses. I'll just read to you something out of Ezekiel 18, verses 19 and 20, because God is dealing with this very issue. He said, what, you ask, doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No. This is God now, talking to the prophet. What you ask, doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No. For if the child does what is right, uh, does what is just and right, and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be, re will be rewarded for their own, righteousness, be own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. In fact, earlier in the chapter, in verse 2, God has become very upset with the people of Israel back then. And um, the reason was they had this proverb they loved to quote. Okay, It's not a biblical proverb. It's like a secular uh, thought that they love to throw around and quote all the time. And here it is. The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, that was popular in Ezekiel's day because the people used it, listen, to excuse their sins. They refused to hold themselves responsible for the national problems they were now experiencing, problems that were the consequences of their sins, but they wouldn't take responsibility. They wouldn't acknowledge that these were consequences that they were living with because of their own sins. Instead, they found it easier to blame their parents for their lot in life. That's what that proverb is saying. The reason my teeth are set on edge, they maintained, is because my parents ate sour grapes. Or in other words, I'm not responsible for my actions, <laughs> my sins. It's my parents' fault I turned out the way I did. Wow. Um, I guess their version of the doctrine of generational curses. But God was so appalled that they would blame their parents for the consequences of their own sins that he rebukes them rather strongly and commanded them basically, I'll paraphrase, to knock it off. He said in verses 3 and 4, As surely as I live, declares the Lord God, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. The soul who sins is the one who will die. End quote. 
Guys, this tells us that the doctrine of generational curses is not found in the Bible. It's not a biblical doctrine. On the contrary, God tells us that everyone is responsible for their own actions. We can't play. And psychologists today have, have encouraged a lot of people to, to believe that they are the way they are because of what their parents did to them. You know? I mean, when you were a little kid, if you cried too long, your mommy didn't pick you up and feed you or change your diaper, it created neuroses in you that have come out now that you're an adult. It's your parents' fault. What you got to do is learn to forgive your parents. Instead of taking responsibility for your own actions, you're not going to blame somebody else and then look like the big person for forgiving them, for screwing me up. Well, it's my fault. It's my sin, right? Now, people say, what about Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5? Pastor, doesn't that prove generational curses? Let's read it again. I'll just read verses 5 and then 6. Where God says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But what does the rest of it say in verse 6? But showing mercy to thousands of people, generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Look, not only is generational curses um, not found in the Bible. In fact, there's only one generational curse I do find in the Bible. You know what that one is? It's the curse of Adam that we were all born living under. Passed down from one generation of fallen sinners to the next. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, In Adam all die. In Christ all are made alive. Romans 5, 18 Therefore, as, though, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, Jesus Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Look, we've all been born into this world as cursed sinners. God-haters. Oh, not me. I love God. Well, Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments. The fact is, people can say they love God, but if they live in sin... They're demonstrating they don't love God. And all the years before we got saved, we were fallen sinners. Cursed sinners who demonstrated that at the core of our being, we hated God because we lived contrary to what he had commanded for our lives. We were rebels. And as cursed sinners, we, have, uh, we all have the wrath of God abiding on us. The wrath of God, John 3.36, is eternal punishment in hell. Every person born of Adam, every natural man, woman, born into this world has got a fallen nature. The curse of Adam, which was the curse of the Garden of Eden, God laid on uh, all of Adam's descendants after him, Adam and his descendants. We were born with this curse hanging over our head. It was passed down from one father to the to his children, from father to children. That's a generational curse. But once a person comes to Jesus, everything changes. First of all, we change families, don't we? Technically, we're no longer of the family of Adam, that family that bore a blood curse, uh, the wrath of God abiding on those that family. But now, 
As such, we are children of God, members of his family, and the blessings uh, and mercy of God abides on us as his children forever, forever. We have passed from death to life, shall never come into condemnation. The curse is broken. The curse is broken. We now love God. Exodus 20, verse 6, but showing mercy to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's who we are now. We love God. We want to keep his commandments um, because we're children of God, no longer under the wrath of God and so on. All right, back to John 9. So the rabbis taught that babies are born handicapped, possibly because of the sin of a parent, grandparent, or even a great-grandparent. But they also taught a child could be born sick or handicapped like this blind man due to the child's own sin. We talked about this last week. They believed that children could sin in the womb and thus cause themselves to be born handicapped. They believed in prenatal sin. They said, where did they get that from? Well, they did have a couple scriptures they went to. Genesis 4, verse 7. Genesis 25, verse 22. Let me read you Genesis 4, verse 7. God is speaking to Cain. And he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And the rabbis interpreted door to mean the door of the womb. Sin can happen even when a child is at the door of the womb. I would imagine that means right before it's born even. But they had further proof, as you can imagine. Genesis 25, verse 22. It's talking about how Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was pregnant, and uh, all of a sudden there's a fight going on in her womb. Okay? I mean, it's like, you know, I would imagine her tummy's going nuts, okay? Just, you know, and uh, she, she talks to the Lord, Lord, what's going on? He said, two nations are in your womb. Okay? No wonder it was crowded in there. Two nations. <laughs> of course, it was twins, and that's what got, you know, it was Esau and Jacob, they would become two nations, and they would be at war with each other, perennially, okay? But the idea was that here you had Jacob and Esau must have been slugging it out in Rebekah's womb, and the rabbis thought, well, well you know, that's sin. You can to physically, you know, fight with your brother, and since it happened in Rebekah's womb, it proves that children can sin in the womb. Wow. Hence the disciples' question to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. That makes sense now, when you realize what the rabbis taught on the subject. Okay, verse 3. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And guys, God allowed this man to be born blind so he could eventually heal him and get glory from this man's life, but in the process save this man's soul. There are some people that won't get saved unless they go through some severe adversity. I mean, I've heard more than a, a, a couple of professional athletes, football players, Healthy, on top of the world, making big money, then blow a knee out. Career is ended. And in that condition, they come to Christ. Before that, they had no need for God. They're on top of the world. 
But now, career is over. And God used it to bring them to himself. I have a nephew. His name is Christopher. And uh, one day he was at a party. About 3 o'clock in the morning, he decides he needs to go get a pack of cigarettes. Jumps on his motorcycle, is drunk, and took a turn too fast and lost control and slammed into a car and became a uh, paraplegic. And we prayed that God would heal him. We prayed that God would heal him. God didn't heal him. But through that, he got saved. And you want to know if anybody could handle being handicapped, it's Christopher. What a, what a personality. This kid's amazing. Well, he's not a kid anymore, obviously. He got saved. He goes to church. He's in a wheelchair. He drives a car. He just, nothing stops him. He's serving the Lord. He's doing all kinds of stuff. Went on TV. You know, he was a chef by trade. Went on one of those programs. And I'll tell you what, this, this kid lives life. And he's a great witness for the Lord. I don't know if he ever would have gotten saved if he hadn't been handicapped, been crippled. Oh, but that sounds so cruel. What's more cruel? For God to give you a nice, pleasant life with no problems and you die and go to hell forever? Or God give you a little adversity now on this earth so you get saved and spend eternity with him forever? I'll let you figure that out. Verse 6, When he had said these things, he spat in the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, Yeah, it's him. Others said, No, it's like him. He's, he looks like him. It's not him. Then the guy said, No, it's me. It's me. Okay? Now look, technically he's not saved yet, but if the Holy Spirit is using him, is an illustration of those who were born spiritually blind and then get saved. Have you ever noticed somebody who was looked one way, unsaved, and when they got saved, their whole countenance changed? Talked about my nephew, I have a cousin. When he was a teenager, this kid was always in trouble with the law. Drugs, fights, everything. Miserable guy to be around. He gets saved. He walked into a restaurant one time where I was at. I didn't recognize him at first. Oh, Mike. You know, so I didn't recognize him at first. His whole countenance was different. Look, your countenance is the first testimony you give to the people you come in contact with. I don't care how bad a day you're having. You pray. If you're going to go out in public, you pray that the Lord will give you grace to not, you know, manifest a down countenance you're in the king's presence Nehemiah was cupbearer before King Artaxerxes and his, pre his countenance was down because he was worried about his people he's in Persia and uh, Jerusalem was still in rubble ruins and uh, the king saw that he was of a sad countenance and that was a capital crime if the king wanted to you're serving the king. You got a down countenance that reflects on the king. Took it personal. Of course, God didn't allow Nehemiah to be killed. 
use them to go back and help rebuild the walls. But the point is we are serving the king of the universe. How does it reflect on him when we're walking around sad and irritated and feeling sorry for ourselves over whatever? This guy's whole countenance changed. His whole countenance. People didn't even recognize. Is this the same guy that was begging all those years? I don't know. I think he might be. No, no, it looks like him, but it's not the same. No, it's me. It's me. Okay? Verse, eight, verse 10. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. I think one of the paraphrased translations says, What did he look like? That's got to be the dumbest question in the Bible. <laughs> what did he look like? The guy was blind. Even this one. Where, where is he? I don't know. I don't even know who he looked like. I mean, he told me he put mud in my eyes to go wash in the pool of Siloam. I don't know. Where is he? Where does he look like? I don't know. Gee. But I want you to notice the, pro- and I'll, we'll finish with this. I want you to notice the progression of this man's faith as it develops throughout the chapter. In verse 11, he refers to the Lord as a man named Jesus. Verse 17, his faith in Jesus deepens to the point where he refers to him as a prophet. In verse 33, his faith grows a little deeper uh, still, and he says of Jesus that he came from God. Now, does that mean he thought he was a supernatural messenger sent directly from heaven, maybe an angel in human form? I don't know. I just see his faith is getting stronger. And then finally, in verses 35 and 38, uh, we see his faith climaxed, where in verse 35, uh, the Lord uh, says to him, uh, the Lord says to uh, this man, Do you believe in me as the Son of God? And he responds in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Can I ask you this morning, where do you land in the progression of, in that progression of faith? Where do you land? Okay. In Matthew 22, Jesus asked some Pharisees. Some of them could have been the very guys he has been confronting in chapter 8 and 9. He asked some Pharisees a question. Matthew 22, verse 42 He said to these guys, what do you think about the Christ, Messiah? Whose son is he? And listen, they said to him, he is going to be the son of David. Son of David. Now the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' question was the standard belief held by the Jewish people as to whom Messiah would be when he finally came to the earth. See, they believed that Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. Why did they believe that? Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said, that Messiah was going to be one of David's descendants. And they reasoned because David was a man, Messiah is going to be a man, like David, not not son of God. This happens to be the standard response of many people today when asked who Jesus was. I mean, what do you, you know, most people have opinions about Jesus. Uh, I've heard a number of different opinions. Um, I think he was a good man that has influenced Western culture. I think that he might have been a prophet, I heard one guy tell me. I think that he was a great philosopher. Well, I think he was the greatest teacher who ever lived. So many believe Jesus was a good man, a great man, but just a man. 
not the Son of God. If you want to press this a little bit and find out for yourself, you can go to the streets if you want and uh, canvas people, ask them who they believe Jesus Christ was. Um, for many, the conversation would go something like this, okay? You ask people, who, who is Jesus Christ? Well, I believe he was a great religious teacher sent here by God to teach us truth. Oh, okay. Do you believe that he was God in human form? Oh, well, no. I mean, actually, I think we're all, you know, the God forces in all of us. I think we're all God, okay? Ascending to Godhood. Well, do you believe that he was or is the Savior of the world who came to the world to save us from sin? Many people today would say, no, I don't, I don't believe in sin. I don't believe we're sinners. Uh, I believe that, uh, you know, truth is relative. And so right and wrong are both relative concepts. What's right for you might not be right for me. What's wrong for you might not be wrong for me. Uh, it's all relative. I don't believe in absolute truth. So did Jesus come to save sinners? Uh, no, because there are no sinners. Do you believe he's the only way to heaven? Many people today would say, no, I, I believe there are many roads that lead to heaven. But I believe he was the greatest teacher ever to live. Why do you believe that? You've rejected pretty much everything he said about himself and salvation. He taught all these things. Yet you reject him. You reject his teachings. You, you reject him as the Son of God. You reject him as the Savior of the world. You reject him as the way to heaven. I mean, what makes him such a great teacher? Think about your position. C.S. Lewis pointed this out. He said, either Jesus Christ was a liar, a lunatic, or he was and is Lord, the Son of the living God. Let me end this morning by asking you the question that Jesus asked um, so many years ago. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Remember now, saving faith is always personal faith. We don't get to have them uh, through a group. It's always individual faith. You remember when Jesus and his disciples came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, and he turned to them and asked them, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Our vernacular, what's the word on the street concerning me? They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some, Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Listen, he says them, but who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of Jesus. Well, my mom, she always believed him to be there. It doesn't matter. God, God bless your mom. You don't get into heaven because your mom was a Christian. Well, my wife, oh, she's always harping on me, you know, and quoting me the Bible, putting little post-its in my lunch, uh, you know, and scripture verses, and, and, and she's a godly woman. Great. God bless your wife. She's not going to get you into heaven. Who do you say I am? Remember when Jesus was very close to a family, lived in uh, Bethany, consisting of uh, two sisters and a brother, Mary, uh, Martha, and uh, Lazarus. Lazarus at one point was, got very sick. We're going to learn this in John 11. And uh, the girls quickly sent a messenger to tell Jesus, please come quickly, the one who you love. He was very close to this family. is very sick, near the point of death. 
Jesus waits a couple of days purposely, then travels the two days to Bethany, but this time Lazarus has been dead and buried four days. As he starts coming to the outskirts of town, Martha hears the Lord is coming. She runs out of the house where they were all mourning, falls at his feet and rebukes the Lord gently and says, Lord, where were you? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will live again. Oh, yes, Lord. At the resurrection of the last day, I believe that. See, our faith is always future, isn't it? I got faith for the future. I just don't have any faith for right now many times. Martha, your brother will live again. Yeah, I know. At the resurrection of the last day, I'm the resurrection and the life, right? He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? It's either, yes, I do believe it, or no, I don't. There is no middle ground with a radical. Jesus was a radical. Never let you take a middle ground. Laissez-faire, you know, ambivalence. No. He, he would speak the truth, and he would press you to make a decision. The correct answer would be the answer of this blind man made to see in verse 38. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then worship him. Let me just end by saying this. All of us who are saved, John 4, are worshipers. Jesus said the Father is seeking those who will worship him, true worshipers. He said the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth, looking for true worshipers. As worshipers, we are reflecting him to this world. How do I worship the Lord? By representing him. That's in part how we do it. We represent him properly to the people of this world. The way we think, the way we talk, the way we act. Very important. We say we're, you know, we're saved, but we think we've been, you know, that's all. We, I, I believe Jesus, I'm saved. Yeah, but the real goal is to make you a worshiper. A worshiper is somebody who serves God, uh, uh, Romans 12, 1. Offer yourselves as living sacrifice, a sacrifice to him. This is your reasonable act of worship. Living for God. That's what it's all about. Giving our lives to him as living sacrifices. So we'll continue on, God willing, next Sunday as we continue through John 9. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It is truth. It is a light. And, Lord, we thank you that you have opened our eyes that we might see. And now, Lord, we are worshipers who are lights in the darkness. Give us grace, Lord, to let our lights so shine that when people see our lives, our changed lives, they will glorify our Father in heaven. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.